Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author Alexander Rose, and we discuss his excellent book, The Lion and the Fox, which takes a look at two American Civil War-era spies, one Union and one Confederate, who have both been dispatched in neutral Britain with a vital mission. I hope you find this episode interesting. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. It's great to have you on. Just for the benefit of the audience, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I was born in uh, New York, and then I went to school uh, in Australia, and then I went to university in England, and then I worked in England for a long time. So you can perhaps tell by the way I I speak kind of funny. (laughs) And then I worked in Canada for a couple of years, and then I I kind of, about 15 years ago, I think I circumnavigated the Anglospheric world and ended up back exactly where I'd started, back in, in New York. So that's where, that's where I am now. And I used to be a journalist, and I, went, I just kind of got out of the journo trade and went into the, that other great money-making business, writing history books. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, you've done well. I mean, uh, one of your books was turned into a TV drama, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, uh, that was my second book. That was, uh, that was Washington Spies, The Story of America's Aspiring, which is a story I just sort of came across and I thought it was such a great idea. I thought it was a cool idea. And, um, you know, it didn't, didn't really do anything when it came out. Uh, and then I think six or seven years after it came out, I got a call from out of the blue from, a, you know, some you know, big time Hollywood producer and said, hey, we're gonna, you know, can I make your book into a TV show? And so I said, sure, you know, just send me a check and off you go. And, uh, you know, then it, they sort of went ahead. Came a show on AMC called Turn. Uh, Washington Spies, and it's on for four seasons. And at the beginning, I was a I was a kind of consultant. Uh, you know, I was in the writers' room for the first time. You know, in LA, and coming up with ideas, uh, <laughs> not all of which were used. And uh, you know, after that, I joined the writers' room, and I became a you know. So I wrote uh, three episodes, I think, for seasons two, three, and four. So it was great. You know, it was a huge, uh, great learning experience. It was a lot of fun. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, excellent. Well, today we're going to talk about your new book, which is a really interesting and excellent book called The Lion and the Fox. And that looks at the efforts of the of Confederate forces to secretly build a, a navy during the U.S. Civil War. So before we start getting into the, the details of the book, I suppose, what is it that sort of draws you to this sort of topic of the Civil War? Because you've obviously got a big interest in this. And how did you go about researching this book? But this was an idea that I, I you know, I heard about this was a long time ago this was i mean this was probably just just after i wrote washington spies which is around 2006 and i was kind of casting around for more ideas and uh you know like most writers do you have a you know a a kind of a file of ideas Mm. uh 98 of which are diabolically terrible (laughs) ideas that never (laughs) never go anywhere 
And I put the, I wrote this down. I wrote down, it was a couple of lines in the document, put it in the file. And, you know, I heard about these two guys in, in Liverpool. He's a Confederate spy and a Union spy, and they were kind of fighting over or struggling to build a, a Confederate fleet. The problem is, is that whenever I looked into it, it got it just seemed incredibly complicated. I mean, it was just hundreds of ship names and overlapping dates, and you know, hundreds of letters going back and forth. I mean, it was just sort of I couldn't I couldn't break it. I couldn't work out the the structure and the story of this thing. So, you know, I put it aside and I wrote a couple of other books on, on other subjects, like about um, the competition or the struggle for mastery uh, between Zeppelin airships and airplanes in the 20s and 30s and a technological history of, of certain types of weaponry and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I kept on coming back to this idea, though. I, it was, I, I, I had an idea of how I was going to do it. I knew it was going to be, I don't know if you remember, uh, from Mad Magazine, that old comic strip called Spy versus Spy. It was about these two, these two hapless spies, one black, one white, and they would try and sort of Tom and Jerry each other um, using increasingly sort of Heath Robinson-esque apparatus to try and outwit each other. And I, so I, I knew that, that was how it was going to work, but I couldn't work out the structure. It was just too complex. And so what you'd end up with is a, some 900-page tome that nobody would read. And it was only a, a couple of years ago that I went back to it after having been on turn. And so I learned a thing or two about drama and making a story work and move along quickly. And it fin I finally worked out the structure. It was a three-phase structure, and it was rather useful alliteratively. It was you know, uh, the runners, the raiders, and the rams. Once I had that, then everything kind of fell into place and the story just sang. So that, that's basically how it came around. So this is a, a combination of a book that essentially started I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. And uh, you know, which I finally got back to just uh, two or three years ago. So that that's the story of the, of the book. How did you kind of go about researching this topic? Because it is quite, you know, obviously it's very detailed and it's quite historic. So what kind of archives and things did you have to kind of dig into to kind of find some of this stuff? Yeah, well, I I spend a lot of time when I because I when I'm doing this kind of intelligence history, you really have to go to the archives. I mean, you, there's no other way to do it. And you know, you see a lot of and this be charitable, sensationalistic intelligence history, let's put it that way, which seems to be mostly supposition and a bit of magical thinking and a lot of anachronism, which I've always stayed away from. I prefer to do it what's and all and you know tell the real story of what actually happened. With the Culperin, who were the stars of Washington Spies, that worked out well because they had a, about 150 letters that had been preserved in the Washington papers in the Library of Congress. So, you know, you had that uh, skeleton there, a spine. With this one, I was very lucky in that Thomas Dudley, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later, who was the Union consul in Liverpool during the Civil War. He, uh, you know, being a consul, he every week and uh, he would write a report for his masters at the State Department in Washington. And it would go, he would send it to the embassy or minister, uh, you know, the, the minister in, uh, or ambassador in, in London. Uh, Charles Francis Adams, and it would get eventually passed on to Washington. And these were very, very full letters, um, you know, many, some of which were 10 or 15 pages, some of them were two pages, but it was essentially a week or even three times a week, containing colossal amounts of detail on what he was actually doing in Liverpool, especially as regarding his antagonist. And they were all lodged in a, a kind of a very large collection of files at the National Archives in you know, outside of Washington called sort of uh, dispatches from Liverpool Consul. It was part of a State Department series kind of thing. I, I mean, 
you know, I want to, I don't want to tell a lie, but I, I, I have no idea how many people have actually, actually looked at this stuff because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of paper, which had been microfilmed. And as everyone knows, microfilm is the bane of every historian's existence because it's just so horrible to work with. But I was lucky in that I just, uh, just before uh, the COVID shutdowns happened and locked, locked out all the archives, I got the National Archives to digitize them all from the microfilm. So I've got, the, I've got these colossal collections of, of Dudley's letters. So that was like his side. As for Bullock's side, the Bullock was the, his Confederate rival. You know, as, you, as, as one found during the Washington Spy, you know, spies are not generally in the habit of keeping incriminating letters and it's information around. Uh, he was much more secretive in a way, but he did write a lot of, you know, very, very lengthy letters. Not as many as Dudley did, but very, very detailed letters to uh, Mallory, who was the secretary of the Confederate Navy in, in Richmond during the war, um, which contained huge amount of details on what, what he was doing. His, they're kind of his monthly or quarterly reports, essentially. And there were other bits and pieces, like the, you know, there were receipts and there were uh, newspaper articles. There were, uh, you know, all sorts of, all that kind of correspondence, his, his own correspondence. So, but between the two of them, there was a lot of, lot of stuff to go through. That's the importance of having a structure. You've got to, otherwise you just get completely tangled up in this stuff. So that's how, that's essentially how it works. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Well, no, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who are probably um, aspiring authors themselves and uh, it's such a fascinating area. So thank you for that. And we're going to sort of kick off into your book, but I suppose before we start that, um, it would be quite good to just get a very broad guide to the US Civil War and why the Confederates wanted to build a Navy and kind of what their options were to achieve those goals. Uh, well, that's a very uh, big question. It about, is. Uh, what, the, what the Civil War was about. So I think um, my uh, Wikipedia might be your friend on that one. The, uh, but uh, the, um, focusing on the, why the Confederates wanted a Navy. Uh, the first thing is, is um, we conventionally think of the Civil War as a land war. Uh, you know, the blue and the gray and Gettysburg and Lee versus Grant, which is exactly what I didn't want to do for this book. It's done it a billion times. But the naval aspect hasn't really been covered very much. It always gets, it's, it's like the sort of the Cinderella of the whole thing. But yet it was actually, you know, one of the most important aspects of it because the naval, the naval aspect allowed the land war to continue for as long as it did. Without the naval aspect, without the, the cotton and the gun running and the, and the weapons and so forth that were being smuggled across the Atlantic through the Union blockade of southern ports, there, it's very unlikely the South could have continued it to fight as long as it did. It would have shut down at least a couple of years earlier. So that's one reason why it's important for the Confederates to get a Navy. At the beginning of the war, I mean, the Confederate Navy consisted of precisely one blue water ship. So it really wasn't very, very impressive. It had a, it had a couple of hundred officers who had, who had come over from the U.S. Navy and resigned their commissions. But it, it was literally they had more men than ships by far. So Bullock, James Bullock, the Confederate fellow, is kind of recruited by Mallory, the Confederate Navy secretary, to go to Britain to uh, acquire by commission, however he does it, a Navy, uh, a Confederate Navy that's, whose purpose is to, at first, break the Union blockade through smuggling guns and cotton, break that Union blockade. Second, to build commerce raiders that later became the famous CSS 
uh, Alabama and the CSS Florida, which would uh, target northern or union merchant vessels and, and sink them um, to cause Lincoln a huge amount of economic pain. And the third stage was that he was supposed to build uh, a couple of uh, advanced ironclads, uh, which were called the Laird Rams. Uh, Laird's because Laird's was the biggest, was huge shipyard in, in Liverpool. And the Rams because they, well, they rammed stuff. <laughs> they, they were iron, ironclads that are very modern gunnery. It was a modern weapons platform that also had one of those old, uh, you know, sort of ancient style metal prowls at the beginning. And it would just, their job was to ram Union frigates, uh, the you know, Union fighting uh, ships, uh, and just sort of drown them out, out at sea. It was a very simple plan, but once the, the whole point was to keep the Confederate war effort going, while at the same time uh, proving to the British, who were the world's hyperpower at the time, that the Confederate Confederacy was a going concern, that they should stick with it, and at the same time, uh, you know, that, that it would feed the war sinews. So there would be a lot of uh, that, that uh, what I call Dixie's white gold cotton would come flowing eastwards across the Atlantic into Liverpool, where they had essentially the world's largest cotton futures market and cotton market, cotton exchange. Uh, in exchange for that, they would, that would raise money and that could be used to purchase weaponry in Britain and also France that could be shipped back to the under-equipped, under-armed Confederate army. So that, that's essentially how it worked. So that, again, that's why the Confederates wanted me. It was very important that they get one. And Britain at that time, you know, was neutral during the, the Civil War. And there was a real fear. Um, well, there was a real fear from the Union um, that the uh, the Unionists, that, that the Confederates might draw Britain in and bring Britain on their side, wasn't there? Yeah, Britain was, as I said, the world's hyperpower. Mm. It, at the beginning of the war, the, the Confederates assumed that Britain would kind of put a thumb on the scale for them. Maybe if they were really lucky and they played their cards well, there would be a kind of an Anglo-Confederate Union uh, or alliance against the Union, Lincoln, Lincoln's North. One reason, and there are no numerous reasons for this. One of which was is that uh, you know Britain was the world's leading free trader, and the Confederates were free traders. Uh, they were very old. In the, from the 18th century sort of slaving links between uh, especially Liverpool and the South, uh, which later got converted into cotton when, when the British sort of abolished uh, the slave trade. And so, you know, these were generations old kinship networks. And also there was a kind of a romantic attachment, you know, it's like the, the plucky, you know, like the old Cavaliers type of thing, you know, ridiculous stereotypes about plantation life. Uh, you know, southern southern cavalier types, all all of whom were sort of aristocratic Virginian types, uh, who were who were acceptable in sort of high society and so on, despite the the tobacco spittoons that followed them everywhere. And uh, it was not a, so. Again, it was not a stupid idea. It was a very real idea. And in Britain, I mean, if you went around in 1861 and did a poll, you would find that the great majority of the population were pro Confederacy. Um, I mean, there were you know, at least 100, 150 MPs uh, who were actively pro-Confederacy. There were many, many members of the House of Lords who were very pro-Confederacy. It was actually quite hard to find a big union man in Britain at the time. Uh, Lincoln was not liked. Uh, he had tariffs, which was thought to, to hurt Britain. And, you know, the United States was not a friend of Britain at all. And they came close to war a couple of times, you know, remember, you know, quite, quite often. It was, it was a sort of a tetchy relationship. So at the beginning of the war, but at the same time, Britain doesn't also want to encourage rebels. 
you know, like the Southerners. Because if you encourage one set of rebels in the South to break away from a legitimate government, well, you know, why can't they do the same among British possessions in, say, uh, the West Indies, Caribbean, or around the world? I mean, it, you know, it's what is the thing about what's good for the goose is good for the gander kind of thing. Um, so there is a few like, mm, maybe this isn't such a great idea. We shouldn't be putting all our eggs with these guys. So it was a very confused system. And so Lord Russell, you know, and again, there were other other arguments, for instance, that the Southerners, again, were plucky re rebels. Okay, it's one interpretation. There was another interpretation that said these kids, they were just spoiled kids who were just broken away and taken their toys home because they didn't get what they wanted from Washington. You know, why? And, and, and there was another argument of this is just a, this union, the South-North fight. I mean, uh, you know, what, what the hell is this all about? It's complicated issues. This is just another conventional fight between two countries, like just like we have in Europe all the time. So Lord Russell, the foreign secretary, kind of just like shrugged his shoulders, gave up. And he basically says at the beginning, like, for God's sake, let's just keep out of it. I mean, he actually sort of writes that until, you know, a winner begins to emerge and then they can side with them. So the, the British reactions are very, very complex towards the American war. They honestly... <laughs> They thought it was one of their sort of colonial cousins, yet another one of their inexplicable <laughs> sort of fights over what nobody was quite sure. Um, so the compromise solution was the compromise solution that really pleased no one, South or North, uh, which was, I think, the intent of it, which was a neutrality proclamation. You see, uh, Britain would just stay out of this and, uh, you know, and, and wait, but at the same time, be friendly towards both sides. What that meant was is that the Confederates would earnestly try and draw the Brits onto their side, and the Union diplomats had just as much interest trying to make sure that the British stayed neutral, because British neutrality kind of helped the North, which was a stronger power domestically anyway. So again, it, there's a lot of it, within this whole Confederate Navy scenario, there's, there's a much bigger uh, sort of grand strategy being played out. You see, which is all so the Navy was part of this. So whoever can swing the, the British back and forth gets to win the big game. That was a very long answer to a very short question. No, no, it's good. It's good because it, I think it provides a great kind of context to, to the world that we're in. So um, why was Captain James Bullock selected by the Confederates for this mission? Uh, that's a, it's a great question. The, you have to remember they didn't, there was no secret service as, as we conventionally know nowadays in the 20th, 21st century. It didn't really exist. Bullock was chosen because, you know, in a word, he was clean. And what I mean by that was he was from he was from Georgia. Uh, he came from an old slaveholding, you know, affluent merchant family. He himself never owned any slaves. Uh, he left, uh, you know, he left uh, the South, his family in his early teens. And I think he went to boarding school in Connecticut in the North and so on. So he really didn't have that much connection with the South. And he spent most of his, nearly all of his career in the United States Navy, being promoted, you know, captaining bigger and bigger ships. Uh, he resigns and he goes and goes to make some money as a you know, working for a private steamship company with the letters uh, going up and down the East Coast, like New York, Havana kind of thing. He lived in New York. He was a Southerner, but you know, he didn't have any. As he said, he didn't have any interests or property in the South. You know, his family's based in New York. Uh, he, he's also very discreet, Bullock. He never talks about 
politics at all. He was, he was kind of a black box, what he what his real views were on certain things. Now, we in the book, I kind of explicated exactly what he was thinking underneath it all. So he, he wasn't known to the union as, a, as a, some sort of mad, you know, foam-specked Confederate nutcase. Uh, he, you know, he was a very legitimate, uh, you know, businessman and steamship uh, captain of the North. But there was a couple of other pluses he had during his time as a steamship captain. He'd spent time in the dock in shipyards and dockyards, commissioning ships, designing ships, learning a lot about steamship technology, which is a new technology at the time to replace sail, which made him very rare. And, you know, if you're going to go commission a Navy in a foreign country, you need a guy who knows his way around shipbuilding contracts, which are extraordinarily complex things. So he was off the union radar, which is really, and he was also very trustworthy, very discreet, scrupulously honest when it came to finances, and could operate by himself. And he was mature enough. And he was also a gentleman. That was another thing. Southern gentleman. (laughs) This is 19th century Britain. You you know, you send someone who knows how to use a knife and fork properly kind of thing. Um, So that's what he was. I mean, and Bullock, in terms of character, was, was a very good agent in that he was, he was very charming. He was very polite. He was very manipulative, uh, very ironic, kind of designedly aristocratic. So he had a certain, there was a certain temper to him mm. that, in, that endeared him and made him a, a, a sort of a perfect agent for this kind of job. And that's why he was chosen. Yeah, fantastic. There was an interesting kind of legal situation in the UK at that time in regards to sort of local businesses and individuals sort of directly helping the Confederates with their plans. Can you talk to us a little bit about that legal situation? Yeah, the legal situation is interesting. It was all based on, apart from the Neutrality Act, mm. was based on something called the Foreign Enlistment Act, which was an act, which was an act that nobody had ever heard of until the Civil War. And it was, it was an act that was, uh, I think, passed, if I got the dates correct, uh, sort of around 1819, so about half a century before. And it was really uh, originally drafted to stop British volunteers from fighting in, as mercenaries, essentially, uh, in, in, in South America against the Spanish and so on. But that's what it was really for. And it had never been come to court, you know, any, any kind of cases related to breaking the Foreign Enlistment Act. And it had, uh, you know, a land version of soldiers. And it also had at the end uh, a kind of a, a bit on uh, ships. It was kind of an, sort of an add-on. But again, nobody had paid any attention to this thing. But suddenly, it becomes of vast importance when Bullock is over in Liverpool building ships uh, and recruiting crews and so forth. Because will he break the terms or the law of the Foreign Enlistment Act? If he does, he's busted. He gets thrown out of the country. The Confederacy uh, you know, is, is thrown to the wolves and, and Britain might ally with the Union because they're so annoyed at, at what's going on here. So Bullock has to tread very carefully not to trigger any of the, any of the parts of the, the Foreign Enlistment Act. Mm. And what he does is when he gets it, he reads it. He's probably, probably the only person who's actually read it uh, in, in half a century. And he finds a loophole in it that you could almost literally uh, sail a, a fleet through. And he finds it was just a couple of words that were omitted from the shipbuilding section. And that allows him to go to shipyards in Liverpool, which is the mightiest port city on earth and built more ships in Liverpool in a year than they did in the entire rest of the world combined. And he can go to the biggest shipyards like Laird's and, and a few others and get them to build ships for the Confederate Navy 
but he has to use a lot of subterfuge to get it through. And he has to have a lot of cover stories. They have to be civilian ships. They can't be armed or equipped or outfitted as warships in any way. There has to be a hands-off. They have, they have to be owned by some kind of false front Italian company of some kind. But if he can get those ships out to sea, out into the high seas, well away from Her Majesty's uh, you know, jurisdiction, and he can use a separate ship carrying weapons, which are not illegal to buy, and that then they rendezvous off, say, the Azores or somewhere like that, you can kind of outfit uh, an ostensibly civilian trading ship intended, owned by an Italian company, into a Confederate warship, completely legally, you see, just by evading these, getting, heading for that loophole. Um, so that's what that's what's so interesting about the Foreign Enlistment Act. The, 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 Bullock always has to tread very, very carefully. And his antagonist, Dudley, realizes this and spends a lot of the war, as, we, as related in the book, trying to catch and trip up a Bullock that, into breaking that law. Because once that happens, then the, the, you, know, you can take him to court and you can shut down the operation. Now, related, that's all the shit, but related to that, uh, as I said before, Britain was a very pro-Confederate place. And the most pro-Confederate place in the entire country was Liverpool. Yeah. Bullock goes over there in 1861 and he, and he says, you know, he's walking around town, downtown Liverpool, saying there's more Confederate flags and bunting here than there is in downtown Richmond. I mean, everybody, every trader was, 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 was a, a, a Confederate ally. There were a couple of sort of radical dissenter types, abolitionists around, but they were, they were tiny numbers, tiny numbers. All of the business elites, all the industrial elites, all the shipbuilding elites, all of the, the trading elites, all the princes there were all to a man pro-Confederate. So Bullock has this huge, you can call him this huge network of Confederate friendly businesses. And do it using that and who are all kind of in on the game of trying to sneak past the foreign enlistment act so he creates this gigantic web of, of these companies of these companies that are working with him to evade these laws mm. and supply the confederacy uh and it's dudley's job to try and break that it's a little bit like that you know those conspiracy boards you see in tv shows and there's always the guy the, the wild-eyed <laughs> fanatic with the red threads and the yeah. And the newspaper clippings. That's essentially what Dudley does. Yeah. Uh, except in this case, there actually was a conspiracy. Uh, and it, again, it's all outlined in those letters I mentioned to you before in the reports. He just had, at one point, he, I, I have a, I think I have a picture in the book. He compiles a list of 240 companies in Liverpool alone who are part of this network of evading the law. It's, it's really quite fascinating how he, he just did it essentially by himself and a couple of agents, detectives at his. He's really an amazing, a bit of, um, intelligence analysis and gathering really pretty extraordinary yeah definitely well can you talk to us about thomas dudley what kind of man he was and sort of what motivated him and why he was sent to liverpool uh thomas dudley uh was the son of a uh, sort of very modest quaker farmer in new jersey mm. uh, his father died when he was young thomas works on his mother's widowed mother's farm puts himself through a, a law school and you know, apprentices himself to a local attorney. So he's basically a, a local lawyer in, I think, Trenton or Newark, New Jersey. Again, all by the by. But the interesting thing about Dudley was, aside from the fact that he had no discernible sense of humor whatsoever, is that, and, and, a, and a magnificent beard, is that he, um, he was, I mean, really early on, I mean, since he was a boy, he was a rigid abolitionist. 
I mean, there was no gainsaying it. There was no compromise that he was willing to make. Uh, slavery had to go by hook or by crook. And he would do, he would actually, you know, uh, you know, put principle into practice. He would dress himself up in what he considered to be uh, sort of a slave trader outfit, which consisted of a, a kind of a wide-brimmed hat and a whip and a couple of pistols. Um, and he would go, uh, he would cross the Mason-Dixon line into the South and he would purchase slaves or he would buy back uh, blacks who'd been, who'd been almost kidnapped from the North, sold down to the sort of the death plantation, the cotton plantations down South in Mississippi and Alabama and never heard from again. He would buy them and, and take them back to, you know, back across the Mason-Dixon line, which is a very dangerous line of work. Yes. That he was informed by this kind of Quaker rectitude. And, you know, later on in the 1850s, he gets involved in Republican politics, you know, as an abolitionist. And at the, I think, the 1860 convention, he pulls, I mean, he's kind of in the New Jersey delegation to the convention. He, he does a lot of um, backstairs wire pulling. He's quite deft. And he plays, a, he kind of plays a kind of a role in getting the New Jersey delegation to, to vote for Lincoln as the, as, the, as the nominee, which they weren't intended to do. In return for this signal service, a couple of months later, Lincoln newly installed in the White House, um, says, Thomas, you've been so helpful. You know, here's your reward. You know, as like, these things go. You know, you can either be minister or ambassador to Japan, or you can become consul to Liverpool. Which do you want? And, you know, minister to Japan is a quite a you know, senior diplomatic posting, whereas a consul, even today, is essentially about rubber stamping and it's uh, you're in a sort of a secondary city and you lack the diplomatic power and, and uh, prestige of being an ambassador. But Dudley had been had, had miraculously survived a, a, a horrible, almost drowning when uh, his ship, his ferry sank in the middle of a freezing river. Uh, and he'd been considered dead and that he was sort of brought alive. He, he regarded this as a kind of a miracle and proved to him that he had a divine mission to complete. But it also persuaded it, like, for instance, the abolition of slavery. The other part of it was that he needed to be close to good doctors because his health never quite recovered from it. And he thought, well, in Japan, it's very distant and I'll have to be there for many, many years. But if I just do a consulship, you know, the usual stint there is about a year, year or two, maybe. I'll just go to Liverpool, be near the good doctors, collect the bauble, come back home, get back to my legal practice. What he didn't realize was that he, by accepting this, he just inadvertently stepped into the most what would would have just become the most intelligent the most important intelligence posting in the world as bullet was there and so that's how this this competition this rivalry between them begins and dudley sort of struggled to get actual intelligence in those early days and so he was advised to hire a private investigator called matthew mcguire can you talk to us a little bit about Matthew Maguire and how he helped Dudley? Oh, yeah, Maguire. There's not that much information about Maguire. What you have mm. to remember is that when Dudley first came to Liverpool, uh, and as I said, Liverpool was Confederacy central. I mean, within days of Dudley arriving, he was confronted by this delegation from what was known as the American Chamber of Commerce, which didn't consist of Americans. It was local businessmen uh, from the Chamber of Commerce who were, or had American trading connections with the South. And they sent about 15 guys along to give him a lecture about why, uh, why they expected him to stay in line and, and we were going to ally with the Confederacy. And Dudley browbeats them and starts telling them that this war will be prosecuted no matter how much blood is spilt and we will destroy you and we will destroy uh, Southernism and we will crush and eradicate slavery. And so he sends them off with this flea in their ear, but they realize that they've got a, 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 someone they don't really want to tangle with. He's like this madman, new Liverpudlian consul there. 
<laughs> he's not the he's not the usual sort of get along you know go along to get along type of consul who goes to a lot of sort of boozy dinners and shakes a lot of hands and you know that kind of thing which is the traditional role for this stuff but dudley's at sea he really he has no idea what he's just stepped into and as far as you can see is that bullock is running this town he's got friends everywhere uh he's got spies everywhere he knows everything that's going on you know he he is just outwitting and out foxing dudley at, at every turn so dudley finds a detective a guy called matthew mcguire who was uh an irishman came over uh, i think he'd been in the yorkshire police for a while uh, as an inspector and had lately retired and gone become a private investigator you know his most most of his jobs consist of spying on husbands having affairs or uh, you know or you know, what you know one business partner trying to rip off another and he frames him or he's at one point he sets off to australia and takes back a you know a, a, an absconding debtor and brings him back to face justice uh so he and he was this red-headed rather irishman rather fond of his tipple and bullock always thinks he's a clown but it turns out that he's actually very very good at what he does and he's the guy who knows liverpool backwards i mean he knows every portside tavern he knows how the place works he knows where the bodies are buried and there are a lot of bodies being buried at the time <laughs> i mean he's basically uh, dudley's sort of virgil leading him into into the inferno and showing him how this place works and so you know mcguire is a very important figure mm. uh, over the over the course of this but he's a really quite, quite an interesting character Maguire. Yeah. You mentioned it just now, but I mean, Liverpool was a horrifically violent place at the time, wasn't it? I think the, if I remember correctly, it was something like 500 murders a year or something quite massive like that. Yeah, it was a much smaller, it, Liverpool was a boom town. It was you know, just uh, 30, 40 years earlier, it had been, you know, it'd been a kind of a fairly quiet port, but it had exploded with the Industrial Revolution and the, the growth of, of shipyards and cotton and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's very, very powerful industries. Uh, you know, there were very, very wealthy people there. There were great merchant princes. There were very powerful MPs and politicians from there. Um, there was also, a, a, you know, a colossal underworld as well. Mm -hmm. um, many of them, many people were, you know, kind of Irish immigrants that were coming over there. Um, there were Catholic versus Protestant fights. There were innumerable gang fights going on there. It was, you know, it was, and there were sailors from, it was a fascinating place. There were sailors from all, from all around the world in Liverpool. So, of course, where there were sailors, there were also obviously brothels and there were gambling joints and boozers and in those days you didn't have to have a license to open a boozer you could just basically open one in your in your, your house if you wanted to <laughs> i mean there were hundreds and hundreds of pubs in downtown liverpool central liverpool um all of which are catering to the marine trade there were blackmailers extortionists quite a place and uh, of course dudley who's from some nice parts of New Jersey is sort of horrified by what he sees when he gets there. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but it was an also an extremely violent place. Uh, mostly mm. it was fueled by the alcohol, uh, which was at the time, you know, the gin and the, you know, the rock that gym and gin and all that kind of stuff, which is essentially the 19th century equivalent of opioids. It was also very dense. I mean, completely with tens of thousands of people jammed into a square mile or so living in basements and sort of dungeons almost in back alleys and stuff like that. But yes, it was an extremely violent place. I mean, there were, as you say, hundreds and hundreds of murders. Uh, I think about the same as with Chicago today, but very few guns were used. And it was, you know, Chicago is obviously much bigger than Liverpool. 
And those are just the murders the authorities knew about. I mean, God knows what else there was. Indeed. So Dudley did finally um, get wind of, of the plans that were going on. On the 24th of January in 1862, Dudley makes his first mention of a ship called Oritis. Is that right? Oritis. Can you talk to us about this and its significance? Uh, yeah, the Oritis was, that became known as the Orito, mm. which was, uh, which was the, he got the name slightly wrong, or Maguire did or something. Essentially, the, the, that was the first indication he had that Bullock was building a commerce raider uh, that would become the Florida. He doesn't know anything about it. He's trying to get Maguire to go investigate the, shop, the shipyards and the docks and so forth. But everyone is, everyone's kind of stum. I mean, this, it's, it's very difficult to get the information. You can't be a detective just asking questions. I mean, people are like, <laughs> no. But at the same time, Dudley is trying to lure, you know, find information. He's trying to pay informants and that kind of thing. And it's really interesting, actually, if you go to the Dudley papers, which are in California, uh, at the Huntington Museum, you can actually see the receipts that Maguire's putting in, you know, and you can see who he's paying and how much they're being paid. And you can see the list of informants and all this kind of thing and the information that they're, that they're supplying, some of which is rubbish, a lot of it is gold. But basically, it, th this is the first time that Dudley is going to really face off against Bullock. And Bullock, remember, has, is running this town like it's his own fiefdom. And the Orito is named the Orito because it was owned by, a, uh, you know, obviously a, a non-existent Sicilian firm. Mm. And it's named after a river in, in Sicily. And it was all, you know, it's like front after front after front. So Dudley has his suspicions, but he doesn't know exactly. He can't, he can't prove anything. That's a very different problem. And that's what he has to start grappling with. But that's essentially what happens there. That's, that, that's the first round which Dudley... Finally, it's a huge spoiler. Dudley loses in a terribly humiliating way. Yeah, indeed. And then obviously um, it leads to later on, he finds out there's a second ship that gets commissioned, uh, the 290, uh, which is made by the shipmakers Laird. Well, before we go into that second ship, I suppose, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of how Bullock went about getting the Orieto commissioned and how it was built and how he kind of managed to circumvent the law and sort of keep Dudley in the dark? Yeah, it's a kind of a complicated process. Bullock would, remember, Bullock was not a commissioned Confederate officer, which was key. He was mm. a, was a mm. civilian who happened to be originally from the South. You know, he had entree through various other connections to various to gun makers, you know, and um, gun uh, arms dealers and so on, to some of the shipyards, in, in, in particular the um, you know Laird's brothers, which was the biggest and most advanced shipyard in the world. I think in the um, in the Jules Verne book, uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the iron plates of the is it the Nautilus or Professor A. Yes, the Nautilus. Are yeah. actually, it says yeah, they're actually made by Laird's because I mean, why yeah. wouldn't you go to Laird's? They're the best in the world for, <laughs> for iron ships. And they so Laird's was a very advanced place. They did they made very few wooden ships. They specialized in iron, but they were very friendly with the South, very, very pally, and uh, you know, very sympathetic to them. So when uh, you know a southern gentleman turns up and offers them a lot of money or an easy pay plan, right? Um, to build a ship that is completely civilian. I mean, there are no guns on board. There's no storage for weapons. There's nothing. It is a ostensibly a merchant ship. Well, it's going to be along the lines of, uh, you know, what is that? Ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. As long as they don't ask who this ship is actually for or intended for, then they're not breaking the law. There's, if they are not knowingly building a ship for 
uh, a competent nation, then they're in the clear. So it's imperative that Bullock and the Lairds keep to this story. See, he's and and so he and again he stays away from the docks as much as he, from the shipyard as much as he can to avoid any kind of connections and so on. But it's all there, and so that's how these that's how this ship works. I mean, that's it in general. And again, he Bullock creates a you know fictitious entities who own it. They're they're owners. They're the, the customs house records are kind of altered. People are paid off. You know, the people working on the guys working on the ship are told not to say anything or shoot their mouths off to any nosy detectives or union types in, in taverns and so on. So it's a, you know, it's a kind of an interesting, or it's a very interesting, you know, way that Bullet gets around. But that's that's how he operates. He's very very wily. Yeah, and as you mentioned, he managed to sort of outwit Dudley. What happened to the ship um, once it left the UK? Uh, what would happen was was that the this civilian ship, which would pass all examinations by the uh, by uh, the you know the customs and excise people, mm. his job was to see whether it was transporting weapons and and uh, or you know you know kind of a warship in disguise or anything. You know, he would just leave. It would leave. It would leave with a civilian Liverpool crew, a bunch of guys recruited. You know, and they would be told that they were going on a voyage to Sicily or wherever. Um, and you know, you know, as they after they left the harbor, the plan would change. And this happened all the time. This wasn't. This was actually quite common in, in, in at the time that you know that there was nothing in the bad weather in Sicily. They're actually going the other way. This would happen. You know. And what they would do is they would they would rendezvous in say the Azores or somewhere like that, some predetermined point where they would meet a tender, an old trawler that nobody would pay any attention to, carrying uh, from say London armaments, cannons, um, shells, uh, cannonballs, all that kind of stuff. And they would rendezvous there. And once they were there, a Confederate crew and a Confederate officer, Confederate Navy officers would again come to meet them and armaments would be transferred to the civilian ship and they would be outfitted and equipped and, and all that kind of stuff and outside of anyone's jurisdiction and then the british sailors the liverpool sailors would be asked do you want to join you know for fun and adventure and a lot of money you could sign on to this ship and if they wanted to great and a lot of them did but anyone who wanted to go home would be taken back on the next ship you know the the tender because they couldn't have any intimation of any kind of kidnapping or, or uh, forced recruitment, because then you you are going to be breaking the foreign enlistment act. But as far as the, the, if they're volunteers on the high seas, there's nothing stopping them. There's not, it's not breaking anything. But what you would end up with, uh, as soon as the tender had left with the guns on board and a, and a new crew full of Confederate officers, the you know the new guys would would raise a Confederate flag and it would be commissioned into the Confederate Navy. So voila. Magically, this this merchant trading ship would become a Confederate commerce raider of heavily armed, very fast, very modern commerce raider that would then wreak destruction on dozens of of Union ships. That's how it all happened, and it was all, at least by Bullock's lights, all completely legal. Mm, no, indeed. Well, as you mentioned, the ship got away from Dudley, but um, later on, he started to build a, a list of the most sort of prominent participants in the Confederate shipbuilding plans. Can you talk to us about sort of people who were helping Bullock get these ships made and financed and all that sort of picture? I mentioned before the Lairds, uh, but there were many other arms dealers, uh, cotton uh, cotton dealers, you know, from that that Bullock's contact, his his dark money man in Liverpool, a guy called Charles Prelude was arranging. 
in order to kind of launder the money, I guess you you could say. Um, but there was this, obviously there were various financiers and so on. You know, the Liverpool great and the good, and they had a, they had their own club. It's called the Southern Club, and they would serve turtle soup there. And we we know the name of the butler or the steward there, and so on. They would go there. Uh, whereas, of course, the likes of Dudley would be instantly blackballed from membership <laughs> membership of this thing. Um, you know, so there was this great network of of friends and contacts there. And you know many of the many of the the local politicians, many of the judges, uh, you know, they were all very pro-Southern. At one point, I think Dudley's trying to get a trial held in Liverpool of, of Dudley and his friends, and you know he's advised in London, you're, you're out of your mind. You, you, you can't. You, you, you go in front of a Liverpool jury; those guys are walking free. There's not a chance you're going to to convict or indict. So that that's that's where this this great network comes in the shadow network of of Confederate uh, sort of allies comes in. They are also raising money through subscriptions and so forth, and they're buying cotton bonds that were being offered by the South, uh, which were quite risky bonds. And you know this would raise money. That money would then get funneled and mixed into cotton money and so on, and that would be used. That would be kind of earmarked into. Bullock's coffers to buy these ships um, and, and 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 you know pay for crews and all that kind of stuff. So it was all a it was all a huge sort of shell game of money moving around, which is very difficult to penetrate. But Dudley does manage it. It takes him a long time. But then he again penetrating it and and then breaking it are, are two different things. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Well, that was that was his biggest problem, isn't it? Getting the sufficient proof. And did he have to adapt his methods over time um, to kind of gather that proof? Well, that's that's what the the title of the book's about: the lion and the fox, which comes from the uh, the, the the phrase of uh, the the quote from Petrarch, uh, which is uh, where the lion's skin won't fit, you must patch it up with the foxes. The lion here is Dudley, valiant and gallant and forthright uh, against slavery. And the fox is Bullock. What Dudley does at the beginning, he goes in there and he's sort of Mr. Dudley Do-Right, and he thinks that you know virtue in and of itself will help him win this fight. And he then takes him a little while, but he realizes, no, you know, you're just a sucker. Um, and so the lion has to learn some of the fox's tricks. And so eventually Dudley becomes the fox and he outwits and outmanipulates Bullock and takes him down. And that, that's how that, that happens. So yes, Dudley did change his tactics. He, he starts off as this naive innocent and he becomes a real competitor yeah. for Bullock. The gloves come off, sort of thing. Well, thank you so much for that, Alexander. It's been really great. And if listeners want to sort of find out more about uh, Bullock and Dudley and their kind of cat and mouse game or the sort of lion versus the fox, they should definitely get a copy of your book. So I suppose, where can listeners sort of find out more about you, your book, and your other work as well? Well, I have a website at alexrose.com, uh, which has pages about my books and so on. Uh, another place to you can find me, I run a Substack newsletter about ye olde world cases of historical espionage you know old spies sometimes medieval sometimes uh, renaissance sometimes in you know 19th century spies so they can subscribe to that that's called uh, spionage that's on substack um, i'm also kind of on twitter so people can i you know i keep things updated there so, so you know a couple of places you can find me well thank you so much for joining me today i've really enjoyed that thank you well thanks for having me on it's been great
for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.